I'm all for you subverting the dominant paradigm here on the podcast. That's what Fault Lines is all about. It is the last week of June, and welcome to episode 86 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Mike Gottlieb, NSI visiting fellow and former associate counsel and special assistant to President Obama, Les Munson, NSI senior fellow and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, first-time guest Martha the Miller, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Special Assistant to President George W. Bush, and I'm Grant Haver, NSI Policy Program Manager. So last week, Iran held what it called a presidential election. All of the candidates were handpicked by the Supreme Leader of the Islamic Revolution. No independent candidates were allowed. Voter turnout, if you can call it that, was at an all-time low. The winner of this election was Ibrahim Raisi, who appears to be one of the more vicious thugs associated with the dictatorial regime in Tehran. He's a noted anti-Semite, possibly a mass murderer, and generally seems like a terrible human being. Jody, what does Raisi's elevation to power mean for the Iran nuclear deal? Thanks, Les. I'm going to take a, a slight detour to, to answer your question, just to give some you know, background here. Like, This is a state, Iran, with a leadership legitimacy crisis, at least from my perspective, a theocracy that has largely lost the support of the Iranian public. And you have to always keep in mind that the president of Iran uh, is a role that is has always pretty much been handpicked by the supreme leader, who is the actual uh, authority uh in Iran. Um, what is new here is that many believe that Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, who is 82 years old, has been grooming Raisi to secede him when he eventually steps down. So you might imagine that the Ayatollah isn't really seeking a moderate to carry out his long-term theocratic vision. Uh, Raisi is a hardliner, uh, and the view is that he will probably, you know, seek to sustain the regime as he has for many years in his kind of enforcer role. You alluded to this last in your intro, right, of his role in, you know, in the death commissions in the in the 1980s and for fending off reformers uh, in the 90s. So just take that as background. And now let's talk about the Iran nuclear deal, right? So uh, knowing that, I think it can only make it harder to get more, right, to get that longer, stronger deal that the Biden administration wants, right? So uh, I think it gets harder to get more than we got in 2015. This is a deal whose provisions are quickly uh, expiring. Um, and then I would just say this: like the Iran nuclear deal has always been about has always been about a bit of a time calculation, right? Like Iran's not a stable country. There's growing discontent, political and economic. Our goal has been to get a deal that outlasts the hardliners. Um, But that's still not a short term proposition, right? Like there isn't like an imminent thing happening in Iran where we see the end of the regime happening. So we need to buy we need to buy more time. And I think it just got harder. Martha Miller, first of all, thanks for being on the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Ibrahim Raisi has specifically rejected the idea of including ballistic missiles and Iran's support for terrorism in any kind of deal with the U.S. and the West. Do you think President Biden will change his policy of seeking to revive the deal now that Iran has essentially rejected his rationale for getting back into it? 
So uh, if I could first add to what Jody uh, just shared with us, you know, Raisi is, in my opinion, simply showing us exactly where the Iranians stand. Just as Jody explained, the Supreme Leader is the one who calls the shot. So, you know, his rise to power being part of a succession plan for Khomeini, you know, really just gives us a clear sense of, of where the hardliners are and what we're actually dealing with. So, you know, there are two ways to look at this. One possibility is that Raisi will be motivated for a deal because they're so afraid of unrest. They had unrest, you know, in, in last November. And I think on the one hand, the sanctions relief could be something that could ease the unrest. But on the other hand, that might not be that appealing to them because it, it could actually be pointed to as the external ev evil actor. So, you know, paradoxically blaming us and our sanctions for their problems gives them a pass internally, similar to Cuba and Zimbabwe. So, you know, I don't know if sanctions relief um, is a true carrot. I'm not sure uh, that, it, you know, that we're clear on what the stick is either. But overall, I think Biden has indicated he's very eager for a deal. Uh, the Europeans uh, have as well, maybe a little too eager. But I don't think that the Biden administration should rush to get the fastest deal possible. I think they need to hold firm on something that will make this workable. The only thing that makes it workable, first and foremost, is uh, unfettered access for the IEA uh, to show that this is a peaceful program. But also, we do have to address the ballistic missile program um, and their support for terrorist, terrorist groups, uh, both in the region, but also in other parts of, parts of the world. So, Michael, uh, of course, the negotiations between the U.S., Iran, and the other signatories to the JCPOA were already ongoing before Raisi's election. Of course, he's not in power yet. He's, we've still got a few weeks before he gets into office. Uh, but these negotiations are already going on in Europe. Conversations are happening. The Biden administration's already started to dismantle the maximum pressure campaign that the Trump administration launched when it pulled out of the deal. Given Raisi's election, do you think the Iranians are reading the Biden administration approach as a gesture of goodwill? The, the approach of relieving sanctions, at least some of them, is, is that seen as a gesture of goodwill or perhaps seen as weakness by Washington? What's your take? Yeah, you know, I not to challenge the uh, orthodoxy of, of the podcast or uh, our own Ayatollahs here. Um, but I'm not sure that the sort of weakness versus goodwill framing is always entirely helpful, in part because the internal political dynamics in Iran are sufficiently complex uh, and difficult for us to penetrate, but also because the notion that there's kind of only one way to view our foreign policy actions is either it's either weakness or it's strength, I think is is not quite right. And the you know, I think that we've sort of had opportunities to test the argument that Iran only responds to strength in the form of the maximum pressure campaign. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are a litany of examples, both in the Trump administration, but going beyond the Trump administration, where I think, you know, actions that one would consider weak have had the same type of response or effect as actions that one could consider strong. And part of that is because you're not always dealing in strictly a bilateral relationship with their complex dimensions of the region and because the politics in Iran are complex. So, I mean, I think that, that to, to get around to substantively thinking about, you know, what you're getting out of the question here, um, you know, I mean, we were told with the maximum pressure campaign that the uh, the policies, uh, sanctions, uh, and, um, and the other sort of policy um, components that we're putting 
put around the sanctions campaign would drive Iran back to the table for some sort of theoretical deal that would be better than the JCPOA. And we didn't see that. We didn't get to that better deal. And, you know, you can have an argument about whether we would have gotten to one in the second Trump term or whether we might have gotten to one if we had held out longer in the maximum pressure campaign. But you know, I think that that we, we, we were not getting, we're not seeing movement towards that deal. And certainly with Raisi coming into power, it seems unlikely that we would be, even if we had sort of held the line, um, in a maximum pressure campaign that that there was some sort of theoretical coming to the table that would have involved Iran dismantling its missile program. Um, So I think the real question is, you know, do these types of small measures serve as confidence building measures in negotiations? And I think time will tell uh, whether they do or not, or whether they're just sort of measures that are taken advantage of by the Iranians and they sort of put them in their column and move on to the next thing to fight for. Um, but the, the, I think the productive way of thinking about it on a going forward basis is, basis is just whether, you know, further sanctions relief, which imposes a cost on us, delivers a benefit in the form of uh, self-restraint on uh, the Iranian side and the type of support that we need from the international community to face what is going to be an increasingly difficult regime for us to deal with, uh, given the way that this so-called election went down. I, I do take the point that this election likely means that you know a lot of this talk about a longer, stronger deal involving regional aggression missiles and the like seems a lot less likely. Um, but I still think the relevant question going forward is whether um, some type of sanctions relief, which you know delivers the United States some type of a benefit in terms of foreign policy, um, whether that relief is worth it for us to get a what you know what would effectively be a short-term restraint of the nuclear program. And I think that's a debate worth having, but it's probably a more useful one than just thinking about, you know, will will some hardliners in Iran think of this as strong or weak or, uh, you know, two steps backwards or two steps forward? Michael, let me push a little bit. And by the way, I'm all for you subverting the dominant paradigm here on the podcast. That's that's what Fault Lines is all about. Over the weekend, the Biden administration launched attacks on a couple of Iranian-backed militias in Syria and Iraq, a healthy, I suppose, reminder that Americans are in harm's way before Iranian-backed actors in the Middle East. In other words, we've been going back and forth with them on any number of fronts. It's been a fairly low-level activity so far, but it doesn't appear that the reopening of negotiations over JCPOA has had a salutary effect on Iran's behavior in the region. If you can speak to this, what are folks who are supportive of a deal looking for in terms of Iranian behavior as some sort of endorsement that Biden's on the right approach? Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, I think that, but part of the challenge in answering it is that I'm not, it's not clear to me that um, the sort of confidence building designed to lead to negotiations and the resumption of the nuclear deal were ever conceived of as, you know, resolving or solving Iranian aggression in the region writ large. And this is one of the sort of broader discussions about the JCPOA that we have, right, is that it's limited in terms of what it was trying to accomplish. And some people feel like the price was too high and some people feel like it, it, it did enough to achieve its objectives. But I think we can all agree it was never uh, it, it was never realistically going to solve all Iranian aggression in the region. Um, and I think that that the military strikes show that, uh, I, I guess we will see if they demonstrate the possibility of being able to have uh, sort of some hardline um, 
military options that the United States is able to take advantage of in order to defend our strategic and national security interests in the region, while at the same time holding out benefits for the Iranian regime that convinces them that restraints on their nuclear program are worthwhile. And we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, but I think that uh, at least some people who are in favor of a deal see this as um, the ability to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time with respect to our policy towards Iran, that we can pursue um, diplomatic negotiations to restarting a, an agreement that has a particular purpose and a particular scope, while at the same time not abandoning our right to defend our military, defend our troops, and defend our other strategic interests where that becomes necessary. Jody. Yeah, so I just kind of wanted to think about this a little bit strategically because Iran certainly thinks of it that way, right? Like this is uh, our policy toward Iran needs to be one that is long-term and strategic in nature, just like they think of um, their relations with us and, and the rest of the world. So there are a whole bunch of things that we want to put in that JCPOA box, uh, but it's not the only box that's available to us, right? Like this is and will be a continuing issue. Iran, its nuclear program, its aggression in the region, all sorts of all sorts of other things. Like the short-term goal with respect to negotiations is to get the best possible deal you can to put the JCPOA box back together. Uh, that's like two thirds of it. The other third of it is actually reestablishing kind of a global posture vis-a-vis Iran, right? So we lost that during the Trump years. We need to put that puzzle back together uh, because until I don't think anybody is projecting that the Iranians are suddenly going to become good actors, right? Like what we need is a strong international coalition of allies who are, are with us and see things, you know, from this perspective and that we can rely on to respond when Iran inevitably does the next bad thing that it's going to do. Martha, I wonder if you could weigh in here on the politics of the deal at this point. With the election of a hardliner in Tehran, uh, the foreclosing, it would seem, of any kind of expanded deal. I'm remembering back six years ago, the Iran nuclear deal was not very popular when it was first uh, put on the table by the Obama administration. Uh, Its support on the Hill was very weak, only one party and not even all the members of that one party. What's your take on how the Biden administration should kind of handle the political question here, that it's a a weaker deal, shorter timelines, um, a a healthy dose of skepticism, kind of maybe from around the table on whether this is a good idea or not. What's your take? First and foremost, I I think there are many optics issues here for President Biden. First and foremost, what you just described, the original deal, I think if he were to send, resend the same thing uh, that he sent, that was sent from the Obama administration, it would look like a failure. It would be billed as a failure. And I think in the next presidential election, it would be an issue. The other optics around this is the alleged human rights violations of the newly elected president of Iran. Uh, that is, uh, Amnesty International is is making a lot of noise. And that does not help President Biden uh, on the left either. I think we could see some senators from across the aisle having some bipartisan criticism, to, to say it lightly. So he's going to have, he has, he's got a very difficult political football with this. And, you know, I think he's got a lot of um, smart people working for him who will help uh, shape this as best as possible. But he's going to have to get one of these concessions from Iran 
at a minimum, he should not be presenting a treaty to the Senate that is anything less than the IEA and the ballistic missile issue. I, you know, maybe he could get away with not getting agreement on funding their terrorist groups, but he, he's got to get more than the original deal. Jody, Michael, I want to ask about one more thing before I throw it over to Grant for the next topic. A couple of weeks ago, there were reports that Iran is again collaborating with the Maduro regime in Venezuela. There are a couple of Iranian ships on their way to Venezuela, apparently with weapons, possibly even missiles that could reach the United States. How should we think about this action by Tehran in the current context? You know, obviously, it's really concerning to see the Iranian shipping missiles uh, anywhere, particularly, you know, to a country in this hemisphere that is uh, not friendly towards us and uh, with whom we have a good deal of uh, animosity. Having said that, um, I feel like the shipments to Venezuela are, are posturing for leverage by the Iranians. Um, they certainly aren't well calculated by the Iranians for how they'll play in Congress, right? I think, you know, people in Congress are likely to react really, really badly to this. Um, like it might not give Iran the hand that it thinks it's giving it. But, you know, I do think that that's probably how uh, how they're thinking uh, about it. I think it's worth saying something less more broadly about Venezuela at the moment, right? So, you know, we've had a bunch of interesting developments uh, there, right? So you saw the opposition uh, leaders in Venezuela were just in Washington meeting with the executive branch uh, and the Hill. And there is now an ongoing conversation about whether or not to dangle the sanctions we have against Venezuela, uh, sanctions relief, to dangle sanctions relief, uh, as a possibility to Maduro in exchange for uh, you know humanitarian aid, free elections, liberating political prisoners. So we'll see how that plays out. I don't think anybody trusts Maduro, so I don't I don't know what's going to happen there. But it's interesting to see those developments as well as Washington's response, which is which is tepid, I think. Yeah, and from I mean from my perspective on this, I think that I agree that this is most likely posturing because it's hard to imagine uh, if if there's any genuine desire within Iran for sanctions relief, meaningful sanctions relief of any kind, it's hard to imagine uh, an action that would be more likely to render that sort of impossible from now until the end of time than you know, shipping shipping missiles capable of hitting uh, U.S. territory into Maduro's hands. Uh, you know, one of the only other countries in the world that has a sanctions regime, you know, almost as uh, extensive as the one in Iran. So, uh, it, I, I would expect that this is um, uh, that this is largely posturing. I'm not entirely sure what Maduro thinks uh, he and his regime are going to accomplish by it, uh, but I think if uh, if those missiles do wind up, um, you know, somewhere in, in Venezuela, uh, that a lot of those actions from Congress um, that one would expect would become inevitable and the kind of um, relief that either Maduro or uh, the Iranians are looking for on the sanctions side would be politically thrown out the window. Grant, let's talk about democracy. Yeah. So one of the key talking points for the Biden campaign, now the Biden administration, is that the president plans to bring together democracies to stand up against autocrats around the globe. It's been six months. Les, how do you think the Biden administration is doing on this front? Well, they're definitely plucking some low-hanging fruit. And I, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. The last administration did not 
do the right thing when it came to advocating for democracy and kind of going through the important uh, values that we share with a lot of countries. Uh, so I salute the Biden administration for, for making this a higher priority, at least rhetorically, uh, and, and beginning to, to reassert our uh, kind of rhetorical line with the rest of the world. I think that's important. I'm glad he's doing it. Uh, it's going to have a limited utility from here on out, but it's it's good that we've restored that. It's important to do it. I do think there's a there's a dilemma for the administration when it makes human rights a high priority or, or when it makes democracy and the promotion of democracy a high priority. Plenty of our allied countries and our friendly countries who are democracies end up making decisions that we don't like. Uh, and, and we then tend to get very confused about the decisions they've made through a democratic process. If you're going to support democracy rhetorically, sometimes that means you're going to have to support a government that makes decisions you don't always agree with. And I think folks in this administration and generally speaking among their supporters don't quite fully realize that concept. And it's important, I think, if you're going to assert support for democracy to recognize that you're not always going to like every policy that comes out, but you need to support those countries anyway. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. I think it's, it's, a, it's a good first step by the administration. It's going to need a little more sophisticated articulation and uh, execution from here on out, though. Jody, do you, do you agree with Les that, you know, we're making all the right noises on this front? Or do you see that we have a lot of room to go? Listen, we're six months into this administration. I think they are trying really, really hard to differentiate themselves uh, in this space. I'll note that the uh, State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Bill uh, in the House was released uh, last night, you know, following up on the Biden administration's uh, budget request. There's a really strong democracy budget uh, in that that came from the Biden administration and is now uh, in the House bill, putting a floor on democracy assistance at $2.5 billion. Like, so it's a put your put your money uh, where your mouth is uh, kind of act. And I, I was really enthused uh, to, to, to see that. But to Les's point, it's hard. Like, it's hard and it's complicated to walk uh, and chew gum at the same time, right? Like, it's a great saying, but it's really actually in practice hard to do. Um, I do think the administration is trying. I'm hearing them say the right things with respect to, particularly with respect to China, the Uyghurs, um, you know, Hong Kong, um, with respect to, you know, the the elections in, that happened in Peru last week, where there's an effort to undermine the official official outcome uh, of the elections there. Like I'm hearing them say the right things for the most part. So I, I think we're headed in the right direction. Then the other thing I would say is the other space that you're seeing a lot of activity in is global Magnitsky uh, type sanctions, right? Where these are individualized sanctions, visa bans, and asset freezes on bad, on individual bad actors. And I think we're seeing a lot of robust activity from this administration uh, in that space, as well as their support for the reauthorization of the global Magnitsky uh, bill. So I, they're all they're all positive steps, but it's hard. Diplomacy is hard, and uh, foreign policy is hard. So Jody, let's dig into that a little more. You know, you mentioned Peru. They just had this election where an avowed Marxist won by a narrow majority. His opponent, who is the daughter of Peru's former strongman leader, has claimed election fraud, as you mentioned. You know, the Biden administration is saying that you know this is a a beacon of democracy that others should follow. You know, they they did everything right. Is there more we should be doing to uh, support democracies, especially in this time where there are some sort of questions around election integrity? 
Well, I'm not sure what the more would be, right? Like, so in the case of Peru, right? Like, this is a pretty terrible situation. Like, Peruvian democracy is literally hanging in limbo uh, at the moment. And you saw pretty significant protests in the streets this weekend in Peru uh, for for each candidate. You know, the socialist, uh, you know, Pedro Castillo is leading the vote by a by a slim margin, and the election is now sitting with an electoral jury that is analyzing ballots, right? So the Biden administration, you know, kind of has done what it can. It released a statement late last week calling the election a model, a model of democracy, and uh, kind of encouraging, you know, a positive outcome there that is consistent with the with the election results. You know that that is what the United States does. Martha, I want to bring you in because Les and his comments mentioned how difficult it is when your allies say stuff that you don't necessarily agree with through their democracy. You know, recently, the potential successor to Angela Merkel, Armin Lachette, has warned against a Cold War with China, which echoes a recent op-ed by Bernie Sanders. Do you think that the Europeans will actually stand with America when it comes to human rights as abuses in China? Or do you think it's more likely that we get them to come along on issues like you know, Nicaragua and Peru, where there's less skin in the game for them? Well, I think I think China, uh, that is always going to be a sticky wicket uh, with the EU. Um, you know, the jury is still out, of course, on who will become the next chancellor. If Laschet succeeds, it will really be Merkel 2.0. Just this weekend, in fact, the Munich Security Conference hosted a debate among the three contenders, Armin Laschet from the CDU, Olaf Scholz from the SPD, and Elena Baerbach uh, from the Green Party. It was, you know, interesting and also uh, concerning that Laschet and Scholz both invoked Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik when he when they were asked about China. And if you remember, this meant cooperating yet protesting at the same time with the Soviet Union. So as far as you know, the way I read that is uh, business as usual. That said, the Green Party has had a fairly good showing thus far and is uh, polling ahead of the SPD, competing for the center-left vote. And, you know, Baerbach, I mean, and the Green Party itself, you know, it grew oddly, it grew out of an anti-American movement from the 70s, uh, but it's become a mainstream center-left party. And oddly enough, they are decidedly more closely aligned with the U.S. position on China and Russia and Ukraine. Baerbach was forceful in this debate, talking about needing to be tough on China, also restating her opposition to the Nord Stream 2 project. And, you know, her party co-chairman uh, was <laughs> gotten a little bit of hot water somewhat recently for talking about providing uh, defensive uh, equipment to the Ukrainians. It was, you know, I think night goggles, you know, no ammunitions, but nonetheless, uh, the Green Party is surprisingly forward-leaning. So during this debate, also, uh, Ischinger pointed out that a recent poll showed that three-fourths, actually more than three-fourths of Germans favor supporting additional EU sanctions on China in the case of human rights violations, even if it harms their commercial and economic interests. So the German people are actually more in line with the Green Party and the United States on this than with the CDU or the SPD. So, you know, I don't know if, you know, foreign policy doesn't typically sway voters, but I think there will be more pressure than ever before uh, should lash it win the election. 
So, Mike, let's stick with China for a minute. The Apple Daily, one of Hong Kong's last pro-democracy newspapers, has been shuttered over the last uh, week. The Biden administration hasn't been doing much more than it's already been doing, you know, sanctions, saying that this this type of thing is bad. Has the administration basically decided that Hong Kong isn't worth fighting for? I hope not. I think the answer is that it's, it's really too soon to say for sure. I mean, so, you know, the, this started a while back. I mean, the first raid was, you know, last August and the founder of the, um, of, of the Apple Daily was arrested and, you know, but that didn't really accomplish the objectives. And so last week's raid or the week before was, was designed to really shut down the paper entirely and send a pretty strong message, which it, which it did. Um, and as, as part of that, you know, the um, the Hong Kong security secretary, who's just been elevated to be the chief secretary, um, essentially imposed their own form of sanctions on, um, on anyone, any banks or financial institutions that are doing business um, with the founder of the Apple Daily and any of his assets that are in banks there. So uh, it's a pretty, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an alarming development beyond just, this, you know, the fact that one of the only voices for pro-democracy messages um, in Hong Kong has now just been shut down. Now, you know, the administration and the president issued a statement last week, and they said it was a sad day for for freedom, and they called upon uh, Beijing to stop the targeting of the independent press, and, you know, sort of circling back to what some of what Les was saying before, it's encouraging to have an administration that, you know, that talks that talk and speaks that language, because uh, it's not clear we would have gotten that type of a statement out of the um, uh, out of the prior administration, even though they were very uh, had very strong <laughs> pro uh, it's a strong position vis-a-vis China. But in any event, it's unclear whether the administration is going to um, take anything approaching a kind of hardline position. Senators Toomey and Van Hollen sent a letter um, asking the administration to step up sanctions under the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. And there really is some powerful logic to doing that, given what the um, security secretary has done there. But it's sort of unclear how much you're going to be able to accomplish through imposing primary and secondary sanctions. And you know, some of those sanctions were already put in place in the Trump administration. There were 24 um, individuals and entities that were sanctioned, and it's unclear how much more you're going to be able to accomplish uh, by targeting those individuals. So while there is probably some reasonably low-hanging fruit for the administration here, you know, could any of it really turn back the tide on what's happening in Hong Kong? I think I think that's probably unlikely. I do think it remains to be seen whether uh, the administration is going to take any more serious steps, but uh, whether the administration is going to be willing to um, allow uh, Hong Kong autonomy to uh, really define or overtake uh, some of its other objectives in the U.S.-China relationship, I think, uh, it seems unlikely given the initial reactions, but um, you know, time will tell. Grant, it's not entirely clear to me that this is this is up to us, right? Like, I do think you'll see more from the Biden administration, more statements, potentially, you know, more sanctions. We've already, you know, kind of imposed some trade, you know, revoked some trade and financial benefits that were accruing uh, to Hong Kong when we considered it to be autonomous. But it's not like it's really not clear to me that we that this is reversible by anybody, right? Like China is clearly willing to take the bad with what they consider 
to be the good here, right? Like put in perspective, like it's not even about US sanctions on this individual or some of our trade benefits. You have huge multi-million dollar international companies that are pulling out of Hong Kong, right? Like you have a lot of companies who are reconsidering their position in Asia and moving their offices from, you know, from Hong Kong to Singapore uh, and other places, right? So if they're willing to accept that level of pain and it and it, and it will be painful, then I am not entirely sure what else the US can do other than, you know, jump up and down a lot and impose some sanctions, which I think we should do, but I don't think that makes it reversible. Les, I would love to hear your comments as we sort of move to the to the last segment. Hong Kong is the only place that we've been imposing sanctions. Danielle Ortega, who is the strongman uh, in power in Nicaragua, is doing everything possible to stay in power. He's jailing dissidents. He's cracking down on the press. Uh, you know, the Biden administration has already sanctioned 13 individuals, including Ortega. Nicaragua's economy is in the gutter. Sanctions aren't doing having a deterrent effect. Same situation in Hong Kong, even though their economy is, you know, significantly better. What do we do when sanctions don't work and human rights seem to be in the crosshairs? Well, this is a great question, Grant, and uh, we should all have a certain humility about economic sanctions. They are of limited utility. I think it requires a lot of momentum in the U.S. government for an economic sanctions program to be successful. I would point to what Congress and some administrations reluctantly did uh, vis-a-vis Iran uh, a few years ago, putting a lot of pressure on that regime to come to the table and start negotiating. Uh, that was that was years in the making, Jody was a huge part of that effort. It took two parties in agreement. It took an administration that was willing to implement the sanctions in a tough way. Uh, that's that's a lot of work. That's a lot of effort. I'm not sure you're going to find that uh, with respect to Hong Kong or Nicaragua. I would I would hope we would. Uh, in in the case of Nicaragua, at least we should. I think uh, it's perfectly appropriate for this administration, in particular, to double down on multilateral diplomacy to start to rally the rest of the the region in the Western Hemisphere against the Ortega regime. The the actions that it's taking now are grossly offensive. There are uh, pre, you know political candidates, journalists, human rights activists all fleeing Nicaragua. Uh, it's it's a terrible situation. None of this should be surprising. Ortega's been a thug for decades. His group is an odious group. We were engaged in a proxy war against them in the last century. I don't think it's appropriate to renew that. Uh, so I think what we really should be doing is rallying the rest of Latin America to oppose what Nicaragua is doing. Uh, I hope that's what the, where the administration is. Frankly, I haven't seen a huge engagement from the administration. We don't see senior officials engaged in this effort. We still have an acting assistant secretary for Western Hemisphere. Uh, the, the administration needs to take more steps. This is our backyard. And as we saw with Iran flirting with Venezuela, uh, it, is, it's a, it can be an Achilles heel for us. We need, we need to do the best we can in the Western Hemisphere. We need to work with countries that are friendly and allied with us to, to stop these things as quickly as we can. There's, it's not a perfect solution. It's going to be a struggle, uh, but we can put a lot of pressure on a place like Nicaragua beyond economic sanctions, I think. You know, for my piece, I, I'm glad that the Biden administration has put someone as capable as my former boss, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, in charge of the Central America billet. I just hope she has the time, attention, and drive to get uh, something done there. Grant, just on that piece, I feel like I need to echo my former boss, Senator Menendez, and just kind of put out there, like, we need to stop thinking of it as our backyard and think of it 
as our front yard, right? Like only when we actually consider the region to be a priority uh, for its own purposes, but also because of its implications uh, for the United States in the context of uh, of migration, uh, will we actually start uh, to get this right, right? And Nicaragua is awful, but honestly, the situation in Honduras and Guatemala is poor, and El Salvador is in just as bad a shape as as Nicaragua in the context of of democracy uh, at, at this point in time, right? We have a lot of um, serious work and engagement to be do, to be done there. Thanks for that, Jody. With that, let's go to our last segment where we each talk about something we're following the news that might be going under the radar. Martha, why don't you get us started? Uh, thanks, Grant. Uh, so last week, uh, Poland and the Baltic states thwarted a proposal by Merkel and Macron where they were seeking to have their own summit with Putin. Uh, you know, interesting uh, development. Uh, and, you know, what does this indicate? Are they frustrated with perhaps the situation with Ukraine? Um, and, you know, what what I saw again in the Munich Security Conference debate with the three chancellor candidates for Germany, they all endorsed a qualified majority vote for decisions coming out of the EU. So uh, that was surely, uh, you know, one of the many decisions uh, that maybe Germany didn't see things going the way they wanted it. And a qualified majority will will be a top issue going forward. Jody, what are you following this week? I am following this news that India has redirected 50,000 additional troops to its border with China, right? So this is a very historic shift for India, which has traditionally focused its efforts, uh, you know, toward Pakistan while also keeping something of a of a presence on the Chinese border. Uh, collectively, that means that India has something around 200,000 troops on the border uh, with China, an increase of 40% uh, over uh, over the last year. I think that's a really significant change uh, for India. I don't think it suggests that they're not concerned about Pakistan, but it definitely suggests that they are reacting to a very aggressive uh, Chinese uh, kind of posture internationally and, you know, reflecting the skirmishes that occurred on the Chinese-India uh, border last year. Thanks for that, Jody. Mike, what are you following this week? I'm following developments in a story that was front page news not too long ago, but has uh, receded in importance and coverage in some places, which is, are the developments in Belarus uh, regarding uh, the sanctions that the European Union has now followed through on, uh, which were pretty serious sanctions targeting Belarus's exports of some of its um, most economically profitable products. Uh, and the uh, retaliation, uh, including some developments today by uh, Lukashenko, um, to hit back against the EU um, in terms of uh, crossing the borders to the flow of migration and uh, pulling back um, diplomats. Uh, this is happening alongside uh, the transfer uh, to house arrest of uh, Roman Protezovich, continuing to uh, be very interested in how this situation uh, resolves itself, given uh, the high-profile standoff that we all witnessed not too long ago. So uh, this week, I wanted to highlight a number uh, that's 3.92 million. That's the number of deaths reportedly linked to COVID-19 globally. However, a recent study by the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington showed that this is likely a significant undercount with the real number being well over 5 million. The saying is that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. But I urge you, our dear listener, 
to not take your eye off the ball. While the United States is opening up, the rest of the world continues to suffer. If America fails to lead on this issue, then we have not only failed as a political power, but we have failed as a moral one as well. Les, what are you following this week? So Grant, uh, how fortuitous uh, that I followed you. I'm following a bill that was introduced in the Senate last week called the International Pandemic Preparedness and COVID-19 Response Act of 2021. It is a bipartisan bill. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch are working together on a very sensible piece of legislation that would better organize the U.S. government to respond not only to the current crisis, but also to future pandemics. One of the things we saw last year was that as much as we thought we were ready for a pandemic, in fact, we were not ready. Uh, there was a lot of confusion, different lines of authority, unclear who the decision makers were. This bill, it may not be perfect, but it really takes a lot of steps in the right direction towards making that process more sensible uh, and smart. They've, we've moved past some of the partisan battles on whether Trump was right or wrong on certain things and instead gotten to a place where uh, both both parties are actually working together on a better policy approach and a better policy process. And I think that's a terrific endorsement of our system and kudos to both members who are, are really showing real leadership on this issue. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnetsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Riley Boyd for research, Les Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing directing, and also hosting. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.